If we're going to improve how we care for and support people with complex multiple health issues, we're going to have to develop much better ways to identify who precisely we're talking about and what the needs actually are. Now, that sounds rather obvious, but it's really only recently that healthcare organizations have begun to match their concerns and services for patients burdened by physical, mental, and social problems with more sophisticated methods of inquiry to ascertain which patients truly fit the description and stand to benefit. So we're talking about replacing generalizations and a tendency to use limited data with deeper curiosity about patients with complex needs. We're talking about better metrics and consequently, we hope, better and more cost-effective care. That's all coming up on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly and also you can catch us later on IHI.com and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, in planning this WIHI, I didn't start out imagining that we'd focus on population segmentation or predictive analytics or utilization data. But when you start to activate some of these methodologies and combine them with what you can also learn from providers and patients themselves, there's a much stronger foundation, more powerful, upon which to build interventions for patients most in need of better health supports and trajectories. So I'm very excited to introduce this topic, and we'll introduce our panel in just a moment. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He has some helpful reminders about how to make the most of your time with us. John. All right, Madge. Uh, thanks. A few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of your screen is our chat window. Now, if you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask your panelists and your, uh, your our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI, WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. And a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. And if that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number up on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program and fill out a quick survey to let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. And a reminder uh, that you're more than welcome, as you've told us also about the weather so far in the chat, to make comments in the chat. We'll actually get to your questions and comments the second half of the program. And don't forget, if you like to tweet, at the IHI is our Twitter Twitter handle, I can say that, uh, which we invite you to use in your tweets so we can therefore include even our audience who's not on WHI today. All right, some brief introductions. On the phone is Catherine Craig. She's an independent consultant. She now makes France her home, but I think we found her in the United States today. She has over 13 years of experience in systems change and bridging research and practice. She has deployed her clinical skills with diverse populations in inpatient and community settings in the United States and Latin America. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Out in California, we have two fabulous people. Matt Stiefel directs the Center for Population Health in Kaiser Permanente's Care Management Institute. He was a 2008-09 fellow with IHI and continues as a faculty member for the IHI Triple Aim. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Madge. Kathy Weiner, Matt's colleague, is currently Kaiser Permanente Northern California Regional Executive Director for Medicare, and a pro- which has a primary focus on care transformation initiatives. Prior to this, Kathy led numerous region-wide initiatives for Kaiser Permanente. So glad you could join us, Kathy. 
Great, thank you. And here in the studio with me is Eleni Carr. She joined Cambridge Health Alliance four years ago as Chief of Medical Social Work and transitioned to the role of Senior Director of CHA's Accountable Care Organization. In this role, she oversees care management programs across the inpatient and community continuum of care. She's also an adjunct consultant at the Center for Case Management in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Hello, Eleni, and glad you're here. It's great to be here, Mitch. Thank you. All right. So we have a wonderful uh, outpouring of interest in this topic, so off we go here. Catherine Craig, uh, you're up first, and this is not the first time you've joined me on a WIHI to talk about um, IHI's focus on patients with complex needs. That's been part of your work and also the overall learning in the IHI triple AIM community. So I'm going to ask you this big question, which is what have we learned over all these years that now has us doubling down on this work? Um, Catherine will mention that we've got this Better Health Lower Cost Collaborative uh, that's uh, taking place right now, which helped fuel some of our programming today. And welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's true. We at IHI have been focusing on this population in the triple aim since 2009, and now in this Better Health and Lower Costs for Patients with Complex Needs Collaborative. We've been trying to figure out better ways to serve this high-leverage population, the 5% of people who account for 50% of healthcare costs. And we've learned that there's a segment of the top 5% in this year's data who will stay in the top 5% next year. Of course, some people with high utilization this year will have their health challenge resolved. Others will unfortunately die. We are concerned with the people who will struggle just as much next year as they do this year. And of course, we aim to achieve the triple aim with this population to improve healthcare outcomes, or improve health outcomes while decreasing costs and boosting patient experience. So in terms of designing enhanced care programming to better serve this population, We've figured out that we really have to spend time learning about patients' strengths and needs. This group is using a lot of healthcare interventions, but they have really poor health outcomes. So that lets us know that something just isn't working for them. So we have to ask them, what gets in the way of your health? How has your experience in healthcare been? And basically, why is this not working for you? And so teams in the collaborative have been asking uh, a fraction of the people in their target population questions like these to try to understand it better. Then asking questions and really listening to patient stories, we can start to uncover how we need to redesign care to meet those needs and build upon their strengths. Of course, enhanced care models are highly individualized and they often involve wraparound care. So that means it's costly. And if we're not careful in identifying the patients who most need this service, it's not going to be cost effective. So in terms of how we identify the right people, we've learned unfortunately that each identification method has its own flaws. So predictive models generate false positives and false negatives. Emergency department utilization is very vulnerable to regression to the mean. And what I mean by that is that a person who is in the emergency room over and over again this year may have much more limited visits next year, even if we change nothing in what we're doing. So to get as close as possible to a sensitive identification method, we suggest that teams combine at least two different identification approaches. So there's different things you can do. You can create a flag so that perhaps you would identify people with six or more chronic conditions. And that flag would pop up every time a person who fits that uh, characterization comes into the emergency department and then the enhanced care team is notified by the emergency department team. You might create a utilization threshold such as six ED visits, uh, sorry, emergency department visits and two inpatient stays in the previous year. Really important also we found to ask providers. You can bring them your list of the top 5% of utilizers and ask them which are the right ones to target. Who do you think is on a steady health decline? Who do you think is gonna end up in the emergency department without extra support? Also, we found this is nice. There's a simple one item question you can ask patients to self rate their health and then you can target your care to those who rate their health as fair or poor. There's evidence for a really strong relationship between the fair to poor rating and healthcare costs and even to mortality. And of course, you can use a predictive model. But what we find is that when you use two or more of those approaches, your identification is more precise and you're much more likely to see a positive return on investment. So in addition to diversifying their identification approaches, teams in the Better Health Lower Cost Collaborative are developing 
capacity for real-time patient identification. The more frequently you collect your data, the more rapidly you can reach out to potential patients. And so some teams are developing event notification capacity so that when a patient on the roster comes into the hospital or even visits a partner community organization, the worker there in the hospital or the partner organization can call the enhanced care team so that the care team can reach out to the person. Other teams have hired a triage coordinator to manage inflow into the program, and some are providing assistance to healthcare providers to make appropriate referrals. Another really key thing we're learning is that improving outcomes with this population really can't happen if we remain just in the four walls of healthcare. So this is necessary to go outside healthcare and into partner organizations because the constellation of needs that this population has often stands the social determinants of health. So it's really going to be necessary for health folks to forge partnerships with other providers, might be substance abuse or mental health providers or community organizations that help people get access to food or to housing. And we need to do that to be able to serve this population well because the needs are so, uh, well, because the needs tend to span the social determinants of health. So I hope this has given a good overview. And uh, back to you, Matt. Thank you so much, Catherine. It has indeed. And I think you're already starting to allude to things that I think everyone on today's call will say something about the actual uh, redesign of care and interventions um, that follow from better identification. I want to promise everyone on today's program that we're going to actually look at that more in depth in a future WIHI. We're putting a little more emphasis today on some of that identification piece because it's turned out to be quite critical uh, as a, a really in terms of better uh, targeted work. So um, thanks, Catherine. Uh, Eleni, Eleni Carr now. Um, so with Catherine sort of framing there, take us into the world of the Cambridge Health Alliance and what you and your colleagues uh, are starting to do to better encircle and then support the patients with complex needs. Sure. So let me start off by saying that Cambridge Health Alliance is an academic public safety net healthcare system serving about 105,000 patients in the communities just north of Boston. We have 12 community health centers all of which are in the process of becoming NCQA level three certified patient, patient-centered medical homes. And actually the majority of them already are. Um, and we have a high prevalence of patients with mental health issues. The vast majority of our population is insured by public payers. And we've been at refining our risk stratification and care management process for about three years now. And when we launched, launched complex care management, the buzz phrase was the top 5% of highest risk patients drive 50% of healthcare costs, just what Catherine was speaking to earlier. So this essentially became our target cohort, the top 5%. And we started out using claims data to identify these patients. These are patients with significant inpatient and uh, emergency department utilization and high associated medical expense. And when we dove into the data for this highest risk group, we found a real mix of folks. On these lists, you have some patients with poorly managed chronic illness, both physical and mental illness, and often comorbid diagnoses across these two dimensions. And this, of course, is our sweet spot, since the goal of care management is to help people with poorly managed conditions get them under control. Patients who, with support, can optimize the healthcare system and be coached toward better health. But there are lots of other patients on these lists who may not want or need this support. For example, patients with serious illnesses, like transplant patients or patients with cancer, who will necessarily use a lot of care, but who don't need or want complex care management. Then there are patients with expensive prescriptions, like the medications used to treat hepatitis C or HIV. We also ran into patients with high medical costs from the previous year as a result of a temporary issue that has since resolved. So there's value in the data, but extracting that value is a bit of a tricky business. So now, <clears throat> at CHA, we have an embedded model of care management, which I will discuss in more detail in a bit. But when we first started this, we had an exclusively payer-driven process, and it was pretty disconnected from primary care. We found that the data identified many patients who were not impactable, and we found ourselves pursuing patients who wouldn't engage. So in the first iteration of our work, we essentially discovered the concept of impactability. 
from there, we pivoted uh, to a model, uh, we, we called it the centralized model, and we developed a way to validate the payer lists. That is, we sought provider input to determine whether a patient identified on one of these lists is appropriate for care management intervention, which is what Catherine also alluded to earlier in her comments. So to validate patients, we came up with three questions. The first one is, would you be, and, and this is for the providers, would you be surprised if this patient is hospitalized in the next six months? Which turn, turns out it's a pretty good predictor of utilization and risk. Second question is, what are, this patient, what are the gaps in care for this patient? What are their unaddressed needs? And the third question is, you know, to what degree will this patient engage? Now, these questions help us identify who on these payer lists we should work toward engaging in complex care management. And we still ask these questions of PCPs today. So uh, a word here about our centralized model. In some ways, this model had us dealing with some of the same drawbacks of the more payer-centric model, very payer-focused but not necessarily patient or provider-friendly, and it was still a challenge to integrate with primary care teams. But it was successful from a dollars and cents perspective. In fact, a couple of months ago, we heard from uh, uh, CMS that our Medicare Shared Savings Program saved $6.2 million during 2013, of which $3.1 million, you know, we earned back. So uh, that was, although care management was one of a a number of things we did, um, we felt obviously very favorably about this. So we now have evolved our model to one where we have embedded complex care managers in each one of our primary care practices, and we're trying for the best of both worlds. The benefits of the embedded model, where we're working side-by-side with primary care teams, is communication and trust. Care team members direct refer and introduce care management with warm handoffs. This is easier for patients. It's easier for staff. On the other hand, the risk of a model like this, where we're available to take PCP-referred patients, is that we could end up working with patients who have some psychosocial needs but who aren't truly high risk. These patients' issues really need to be addressed elsewhere within the patient-centered medical home. So focusing on the highest risk patient in an embedded model means saying no to some referrals who don't meet high risk criteria. And we've developed a triage tool to assist us with figuring that out, who's likely in the highest risk group and who isn't. So now we have a hybrid model of care management that uses data-driven information in concert with a human touch. We call this payer-informed care management practice, not payer-driven and not payer-blind. And this brings me to my final slide. Um, So what we did here is we took, uh, this was a couple years ago, we took the top 3% of patients with the highest risk scores from one payer, a total of 468 patients. And you can see that 190 of those patients were validated by primary care physicians. So that's about 41%, less than half. Another way to say that is over half of the patients on this list weren't patients who could benefit from care management. They weren't impactable. And then of the 41% who we did validate, we managed to engage 112, about 60% of of the validated group, but only 24% of the original 468. So uh, now what we're doing is we're expanding our efforts to focus on the top 10% of patients, which gives us a much larger pool, uh, and uh, it, it includes the rising risk cohort, which we're pleased about, and we're trying to dice the data a little bit differently, so we're really capturing the highest risk group uh, and the most impactable group in that, in that set. So I'll stop here. Terrific. Thank you, Eleni. Um, I really want you all to uh, quietly give a round of applause to our guests who I ask to boil down some of the most complex work over, that's been going on into a couple of slides and very, very distilled comments. So I hope you'll ask good questions. You can think of them even as we go along. Uh, we now have really the wonderful opportunity to hear what Kaiser Permanente is up to. And uh, I promise you um, we'll, 
we'll try and get to all of your questions. Uh, don't forget, John put the link in there as a reminder. You can download all these slides and uh, take a harder look at them um, as we go or after the program. All right, Matt and Kathy, so we're fortunate to have both of you with us on today's program to give us a fuller picture of what's going on at Kaiser Permanente in this space uh, to direct more effective care to patients with complex needs. Um, you've got uh, various kinds of models and analytics, and one important message I think both Matt and Kathy want to get across is don't say just because it's Kaiser Permanente, oh, they can do that, we can't. It's uh, Lenny has just uh, shown you uh, evidence to the contrary, and I think there's plenty of evidence out there as well. In fact, you can share some of your own experiences. So, Matt, let me start with you. Go ahead. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Madge asked me to provide a little bit of KP by the numbers uh, for those of you who don't know us. Um, we're a, a, a large integrated healthcare delivery and financing system in the U.S. with uh, around 9.5 million members spread out over seven regions of the country, although the two biggest by far are in California with about uh, $50 billion or so of annual revenue. Uh, as, as Madge said, um, you know, because we're so big and different and on the left coast, um, we often get feedback uh, that KP is unique and that it's hard to translate what we do into the real world. Um, but uh, especially in this space, let me just say that we are fellow travelers. Uh, we have a lot to learn from great organizations like the Cambridge Health Alliance. Um, and especially dealing with upstream social determinants of health. Um, and I believe that the lessons that we've learned are very generalizable to organizations of all shapes and sizes as well. Um, at, so at KP, we use segmentation um, as really as a precursor to predictive analytics in all of our regions to better target care for our senior population. It was originally developed um, actually in, a, in one of our smaller regions in, in Hawaii and spread nationally. Um, there are many people involved. I wanted to acknowledge just a few here, uh, uh, Warren Wong and Yvonne Zhao in Hawaii for their original development and validation, and, and Jim Bellows and Moira Belikoff from our Care Management Institute for the spread and national implementation uh, of the segmentation model. So uh, just very briefly, the, uh, here's a picture of the model. Um, in, in it spread into four care groups, and the first care group is the healthy and robust segment. Uh, with about 15 to 20 percent of our seniors. Um, in the second care group, it's the largest care group, those with chronic conditions, about 60 to 65 percent of our seniors. Um, in the third, those with advanced illness and multiple chronic illnesses and comorbid conditions, 10 to 15 percent. And in the final one, uh, the group that's uh, frail with serious advanced illnesses, uh, five to seven percent. This is based on information almost exclusively found in the charter, the electronic medical record. Um, uh, we use a couple of predictive models, the DXCG and likelihood of hospitalization models, which are based in turn on diagnostic history, uh, chronic conditions, psychosocial uh, uh, factors, physiology and behaviors, surgery and procedures, dementia and frailty. There's a lot more that uh, in the Permanente Journal article that Madge will make available uh, to the group as well. I think this is a good example of KP not being unique or alone. You you heard of the the Cambridge uh, Health Alliance uh, model. Many organizations have developed similar segmentation models. The American Academy of Family Physicians has a similar and very well developed um, segmentation algorithm. Uh, Joanne Lynn's now famous Bridges to Health model uses eight segments uh, for the general population, and I believe that Madge will make both. Uh, references to both of those available to the group as well. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> good. <laughs> just just <clears throat> some examples of how we use segmentation at KP um, are to um, to target outreach uh, to specific populations to provide the appropriate level of care, making appropriate referrals, coordinating care, managing transitions, and providing team care. It, it you know it's especially important for the senior population in, in these days of, of, of scarce and growing scarcity of, of uh, geriatric physician resources, uh, uh, 
making it more incumbent on us to target these resources very carefully. Um, in uh, we have uh, validated this model in a, in a number of ways, uh, including um, things like concordance with physician judgment. Um, uh, there's about 85% concordance of, of segment assignment uh, with with expert physicians. The stability of the segmentation over time uh, for those surviving about 85%. Uh, uh, as Catherine mentioned, you want to you want to make you want to especially target those who continue to be in these segments, about 85% um, of the surviving members stayed in the same segment uh, after a year. And convergence with mortality, hospitalization, and readmission rates and costs, as, uh, as shown here, just as an example, compared to people in care group one, um, people in care group two had, had double the cost in care group three, four times, and in care group four, eight times uh, the annualized total costs. Um, this information is also available in the Permanente Journal article. Um, I just wanted to, to go back and, and talk about a slide that Catherine brought up at the beginning um, uh, about self-reported health status. And, and, and I think it, just pausing here, and it's, I think, a really important um, uh, message here, and that's uh, that regardless of how uh, fancy we get with the models uh, uh, from information in the chart for segmentation and prediction. There's a whole lot of very valuable information that we don't take advantage of just by asking patients how they're doing, and especially relevant when we're dealing with new members or patients where we don't have this diagnostic history on which a lot of the uh, prediction algorithms are based. This 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 um, charts starts with uh, my favorite quote from John Ware, the, develop, the, the developer of all of the SF models for uh, self-rated health, where um, he said, if you want to know how Mrs. Smith is doing, unfortunately, you're going to have to ask her. Uh, and we often, we often forget to do that, or at least to write it down. Um, these data come from Karen DeSalvo, and it's, yes, it's the same Karen DeSalvo who's now the uh, Acting Assistant Secretary for Health in a previous research career. And it, they're pretty dramatic statistics. Uh, in one year, people in poor self-reported health compared to excellent are 20 times more likely to die, four times more likely to be hospitalized, and three and a half times more likely to have high outpatient use. In, in my work at KP, we've also found self-perceived functional status is highly predictive of subsequent outcomes. And a simple question, do any of your health conditions interfere with your daily activities? And the combination of the two is even more powerful. We've looked at the association with those with the more sophisticated DXCG and likelihood of hospitalization models. And those two questions plus age and gender uh, account for about a third of the variation in um, uh, the more sophisticated models. Um, to transition to Kathy's work in 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 KP in Northern California, I just want to add some disclaimers uh, about the limitations of segmentation. So what it is, is a conceptual model for strategic planning, a starting point to individualized care, and, and a basis for comparing effectiveness of different approaches. It, what it's not is a predictive model uh, for both cost or utilization, and Kathy will get into how we combine more sophisticated predictive modeling with the segmentation analysis, um, and it's not uh, intended to be complete individualized inclusion or exclusion criteria for specific services. You might think of it as, as opposed to customization as mass customization as a kind of a first step, and, and I think it provides a good segue to what Kathy will be talking about, how they overlay their predictive analytics in our Northern California region to the segmentation model. So thanks very much. Thank you, Matt. And Kathy, take it away. Great. Thank you. Um, so as Matt mentioned, I um, work in our Northern California region, and just a little, a few numbers there. Um, we have 3.6 million um, members, 21 hospitals, and over 8,000 physicians. So um, <clears throat> we're working across a large organization. Um, and um, I want to preface what I'm going to say. Um, you are going to hear in my remarks as I describe the journey we've been on in Northern California around how to identify um, these members with complex needs. 
very similar themes and learnings to um, what you've heard already. Um, uh, so anyway, I have the, the good fortune of, of being the person to represent um, a really terrific team that's been working very hard to solve a couple of key questions. Um, one is how to identify those members that are unexpectedly high utilizers, or better yet, who's likely to become an unexpected high utilizer in the future. And how do we aim just the right intervention at just the right person at just the right time, which sounds simple enough, but as others have said, it's, it sometimes feels like we're seeking the holy grail. This is really hard um, to figure out um, how to do because there's limited resources. We want to make sure we're, we're, we're having the most impact with those resources. Um, and ultimately, of course, our aim is to improve the health and care experience of our members with complex needs and ultimately to improve the affordability of the care we provide. Um, I'm going to focus in on the member identification part of our quest and talk a little bit about how we've built on the segmentation foundation that um, Matt just described. And one more piece of um, context setting. Um, today we have a number of programs um, where we provide um, case management care uh, to our high-risk members members, they're largely based on referrals. So as someone in the organization, a physician or other clinician, identifies that individual, they're then referred and um, into these programs. And what we are concerned about and what we believe is that we really were missing folks um, using that approach um, by not being more systematic in how we go after and, and identify um, folks with these needs. Um, Matt also described segmentation and, and spoke about how it was originally built um, around our Medicare population. And um, we had an interest in, and while we started in the Northern California region looking at our um, Medicare population, we quickly realized that we needed to look at our full adult population um, because we certainly have um, members with complex needs across all of our populations, uh, not just Medicare and not just Medicaid. Um, so just to give you a sense, while we, we did look at the segmentation, and certainly that was the place um, we started, just to give you a sense of the size, though, um, if you looked at care group three, we have over 220,000 adult members in that care group, which is um, a big group to try and reach out to, and, um, and are there people in the other care groups that we would be missing if, if we just focused on, on one or the other care group? Um, the slide you're viewing right now is just intended to help illustrate how um, in the current state we are reaching out to folks, um, but not in um, a really, it's, it's on a referral basis, not on so much of a, a systematic uh, mechanism. And so we really believe we're missing folks. Um, and our future state vision is that um, we can identify um, people with um, needs, um, understand those needs, and aim just the right intervention at them. So we started with the segmentation model, but we also had folks asking us, what about those, the top X percent high utilizers? And you've heard some of the challenges associated with looking at 1%, 5%, and we actually went through that exercise and started with some of those smaller numbers and eventually um, landed at looking at the top 20% um, who are driving high utilization. And then, um, and this is portrayed as a very linear journey. It was. Um, not so linear as we went through this learning journey. Um, we really, when we put together, and, and one of our, our big, um, uh, not so much, uh, sort of an aha, but not really, um, was when we combined the top 20% um, with the segmentation. Because when you do look at just the top 20% high utilizers, clearly that's not a homogeneous group. We found the same thing as was mentioned before. Mixed in there are people with very appropriate high utilization um, because they have a clinical need that is driving um, utilization that, that is, in fact, appropriate, whether it's inpatient or it's drug-driven, um, So they, but there's a very legitimate need for those services. Um, but it was really when we put the two together, the segmentation and the utilization, that um, we saw that within each of those care groups or segments that Matt described, um, there's a subset of folks that are, in fact, higher utilizers. 
Um, and this really supported our belief that there are other things um, other than all this great clinical information that we have um, that's driving the members' utilization. Um, and that it's, it's likely, um, most likely, that it's their social non-medical, those social determinants of health um, that is likely behind that differential because these are clinically similar um, populations um, with, with very different utilization patterns. Um, the other piece that we looked at um, and was mentioned um, earlier in this conversation was persistence. We also looked at, at who persists over time. What's that subgroup that is persistently utilizing services um, and, and care? Um, and because that's really the population we want to reach out to and understand what is, what's happening um, in that population. Um, I want to add, too, that um, we have a great data set at, at, um, with our um, electronic medical record, but one of the pieces of information that we don't routinely collect, it's not in a data field that you can mine to incorporate into a predictive model. It's not there, at least in our system today. Um, we don't ask it of every member, but really what are those, those social non-medical, those social determinants of health um, questions that we should be asking that um, routinely so that we can incorporate them. So we have um, the benefit of having just, and, and we were supported through this journey by a terrific analytic team um, and a, a brilliant statistician, um, Patricia Kipnis, um, was a key member of that team. And she took all the learnings and all that information um, and rolled it together um, to come up with a predictive model that um, attempts to identify who's most likely to be at high risk in the coming year. And so where we are at this stage is we are um, doing, we're piloting outreach to those members so that we can better understand their needs, um, address them, understand which of those needs we can assist with, um, and um, very much they are social needs that folks have, some of which we're able to, to assist with and some um, we really aren't able to. Um, and, and through that, learn more about how um, effective our predictive model is. Are we aiming um, at the right folks? Um, and also in the course of this work, we're learning about um, what are those needs that our members have, um, what are those social determinants of health that our members have that are most critical to understand so that we can build those questions into and build that into our standard um, processes and workflows and collect that information because ultimately, um, you know, if we could incorporate that information um, into these um, algorithms, that would certainly help to um, refine our ability to identify members um, early. Um, so we really see that this is a multi-year journey. We're out to improve the health and care experience of our members with complex needs and hopefully along the way make uh, care more affordable. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Kathy, and thank you, Matt, and thank you, Eleni. Uh, Chad is already fired up, and I want to say that Kathy's uh, last remarks here reference to uh, seeing now they're piloting some stuff with the predictive model. It's a, a, another good reason uh, that we'll be back uh, with some of this uh, on WIHI to find out uh, what is being figured out. Um, I think what I'm going to do is just have John very fast, even though it looks like everybody knows what they're doing with chat, but just want to make sure. Uh, I also always want to say at least once in the show. If anyone has joined this program by phone only, do remember that everything is posted to the website tomorrow, and you can also find the materials we've been talking about at info at IHI.org right now. So, John, on chat? Yep. Uh, on chat, make sure that you are addressing all of your uh, comments and questions to all participants. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Uh, so think about some of your questions. You can also share your, some of you are having a very vibrant conversation about patients that tend to, uh, for lack of a better term, somebody referred to it as being blacklisted, uh, patients that might be seen as too difficult or complex for anyone. Uh, not to put Eleni on the spot with that, but there were a couple of questions. You feel free to address that. People had a couple of questions just after your remarks uh, if, if you want to address uh, a couple 
couple of those. One of them had to do with that whole issue of impactability and engageability. Let me see if I can go to that question. Uh, Catherine started to address the issue about the role of the primary care provider and what happens to patients. There was another one who you decide is not in that care management category or not deserving, but uh, it should be dealt with elsewhere. Where do they go? Okay, so I'll try to take this one at a time. Um, So uh, in terms of the patient who really doesn't hit the bar, who doesn't meet the criteria for what we would think uh, you know, complex care management should really be doing. Uh, we we would like to refer that patient out either to uh, a community a community organization that can help with whatever their need might be, or to internally within the uh, patient centered medical home to uh, a caseworker or a patient resource coordinator or referral coordinator. Um, so you know there are there are alternatives for getting needs met other than simply the complex care managers. Um, And, you know, when you optimize a team, you want everyone doing their job. And I I hate to reference Bill Belichick on this one, but, you know, if you get everybody doing the job, you get the job done. Um, So uh, I think there was another question about um, community health workers. Yes, and I think it relates to this issue, which sort of stirred a pot around Mm -hmm. patients that it seems people who are... um, maybe refer to community settings, but even these community settings uh, are not really easily equipped to handle. That's at least one of the things running around the chat here. Right. So uh, with respect to community health workers, you know, this is probably the most underutilized and valuable resource out there. Um, The community, we actually have a couple of community health workers at Cambridge Health Alliance who I think are absolute stars in terms of what they do and how they do it, and more importantly, where they do it, because they do the work in the community. They connect patients um, with resources in the community. They accompany them um, to, to make sure they're, they get you know access to their entitlements and um, you know make sure that these services are there for them. And these are services that actually do not add to total medical expense. These are you know social services and community services that support support patients and their, their psychosocial needs. So uh, the community health workers are a real asset because um, they can work independently. Um, they work uh, optimally, uh, you know, in um, culturally sensitive ways with the communities that we serve, and we, we have a very culturally diverse uh, patient population. So, uh, so this is a very, very valuable um, resource, and we have just established uh, a model uh, where we're uh, using community health workers to help uh, patients transition from inpatient settings and, you know, get them back home or to their next level of care um, in the spirit of reducing readmissions, of course, and optimizing um, the, you know, primary care system and specialty care, ambulatory specialty care system that's out there. Um, and uh, they will also be carrying uh, some caseload of complex patients. So we have them that's, again, it's kind of a hybrid uh, model, but we, we think it's um, really going to work for our patient uh, panels, and we're going to be implementing that. Um, We've started to implement it very gingerly, um, but over the next bunch of months, um, we'll be doing it more robustly. Thank you. And now we have a math question uh, that somebody asked. This will be also for Eleni. Do the cost avoidance calculations account for the cost of delivering the intervention, or does that count against the 809,000 cost avoidance figure? And I, I, you get it. So good. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of a pretty dense slide, and I, I, I shared it. I'm wondering, John, if you could go back to the, the funnel slide. We'll go that back I to it, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I, I use this slide to illustrate. There's basically two things that are illustrated here. Um, one has to do with, you know, just how many, how many patients really filter down into the target cohort. Um, and you could see that, you know, we, we got 112 in our second pass here. Um, and I'm just double-checking this particular one. And, uh, and the calculations for cost avoidance were based on 77 patients. And the reason for that is the way we did this, and it's not perfect, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, is that we took um, patients for whom we had six months' worth of pre, pre-enrollment uh, claims data, and then we took their claims data six months post. 
um, and we evaluated what their costs were pre and post. And based on that, we were able to calculate, uh, you know, uh, $809,000 potential costs avoided. We can't say exactly that that was costs saved. Um, and, of course, there's always regression to the mean, as one of the uh, panelists earlier referred to. So, you know, it's an imperfect way of calculating this, but um, this is still pretty impressive. And what we're in the process of doing right now is taking a look at the costs for the cohort that enrolled and comparing them against the costs of the patients who were validated but we couldn't enroll. Um, and to see exactly, that's, we think that's a, a better comparator um, to evaluate, you know, the effectiveness of this program. But to the caller's actual question related to does the 809000 count for, you know, the cost of the implementation of the program, the answer to that is no. Um, 77 patients probably uh, would be the caseload maybe for, you know, one complex care manager, um, maybe one and a little bit more, uh, and this doesn't account for any overhead costs, but still it's it's really, it's not a bad figure for, for six months. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. A lot, as, as Eleni said, to unpack here. Question uh, that just came in, and then I'll go back again. How important do you think maybe tele- a telemonitoring program is as part of any of your care models? And maybe... Uh, Matt, maybe I'll go back to you for a moment there on that and see whether telemonitoring is something that's also being explored. I know we're kind of getting into the actual interventions, but anything you can comment on there? Yeah, sorry, I was in the middle of typing an answer to the question on on differences between uh, segments three and four. Right, I saw that Uh, one too. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. uh, Maybe I'll hit that one too. um, Well, I mean, telemonitoring is, a, and Kathy's probably in a better position to respond than I. But is is a, is a really important part of our of our uh, care management programs, especially when we're looking at the at the those um, the the people who are um, have a complex care manager, um, and that that's a very important part of the care of those people. So I'm not sure if there's more to the question, but um, Kathy could probably have more to the answer. Kathy? Yeah, so, um, you know, I agree. Um, it is, it's a, it's a great tool. It's one that um, we um, are continuing to explore um, in, in our region um, is the use in particular um, for the heart failure population. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, let's swing back then, Matt. Thanks, Kathy. Um, Matt, go back since you were typing, uh, but we'll interrupt you okay. further. And uh, why don't, for, for all of us, maybe you could help. That was a question. I'll scroll back up here to say somebody said, there appears to be very few differences in the cost curve for segments three and four. What are the other distinctions or what other distinctions become important? And uh, maybe we could find that slide again. But go ahead, Matt. Yeah. yeah, even though even though the cost curves might look relatively similar, um, that's that's why that's a good example of why we don't use just cost um, in in the segmentation, and that's and that's that the the you you also looked at other we showed you other information about differences between the segments, uh, the mortality rate um, in care group four is dramatically higher. Uh, than the mortality rate in care group three by design by definition, it includes the the very frail um, uh, part of our uh, our membership with with end stage disease in a lot of cases. So the care management implications are really dramatically different. Where um, palliative care and hospice are a, are a, a much more significant component of the care. Uh, in care group four, even if they're even if that that cost distribution looks similar to care group three, it's a good example of why cost alone is not a good is not a good differentiator. Thanks, Matt. Um, okay, you can continue typing now, <laughs> but I think you I think you got it. We appreciate that, Catherine Craig. I'm gonna you've been typing away in here too in the chat, but I'm let, let's hear from you again. This is kind of a big, broad question. Mark says it seems from the literature that it can take several years to show cost savings in many models, yet administrators often are pressured to show quicker results to keep resources targeted on a particular patient population. Um, 
Um, I guess, uh, how does one balance, um, you know, showing clinical improvement with saving money? And I wonder if that's come up uh, a bunch in the collaborative as you work with the various teams. Catherine. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's, it's always an ongoing part of the work to be sort of managing up and helping uh, top-level administrators to see the value in these programs because they are costly. Um, so some of the things that teams are doing, certainly it's useful to collect pre-post data so that you can show when the moment of intervention happened, and then usually teams are able to show a decline uh, in the arc of that curve after the intervention happened when they compare it to the pre-intervention phase. Um, another thing that um, has come out of Care Oregon's work, they found that what really turned the tide uh, towards supporting the program more into the long term was when the, the program administrators surveyed not just the patients about what their experience of the care was. That certainly helped. But when the care, uh, when the program administrators, uh, administrators surveyed the staff members, how did the doctors feel about the program? Uh, how did the other healthcare providers feel about the program? And that survey question came up incredibly positive. So doctors and other care providers were saying, this has been incredibly important for our work. We're seeing that our work is easier because there's care managers who are helping individuals manage all of these different um, healthy behavior sorts of things and their different life circumstances that make following a care plan difficult. Um, all of that work that's been happening allows the doctor or the RN to really work at the top of their license. And so when that comes out, um, that's been something that's been really helpful for at least uh, the administrators at Care Oregon to be able to say, aha, you know what, let's, let's go ahead and figure out a way to make sure we can continue doing this work into the future. So sometimes it is true that the the big impacts of cost can take some time, but showing process measures, showing pre-post data, and showing appreciation of the work and how the work is meaningful has been helpful to, um, to that, those discussions. But it's true, it's always a challenge. Thank you. Catherine Eleni. Uh, yes, to that point, uh, which uh, you know, I think I think it's very interesting that if you ask providers at uh, Cambridge Health Alliance how they feel about having embedded complex care management in their program, they'll they'll sing our praises. I think they're very very pleased with it by and large. And uh, I would say that what ends up happening if you take the highest risk patients, the patients that they worry about the most, and you take care of them in a different way, it allows them to focus their energies better on on the other patients, on the healthier. patients patients or patients with chronic illness but who might not exactly be in the complex care cohort. And um, so it actually means better care for everybody, not just better care for the, for the you know, the complex pop population that you're targeting. Um, and, you know, I've had docs say to me, you know, after we put complex care management in at my clinic, um, my inbox just went, you know, it just it shrunk and I can actually get out of there at a reasonable time every night. So I think they're very grateful for it. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Eleni and Catherine. And thanks for all of you who are really, really providing and participating in this chat with substantive information. Uh, Kathy Wiener, I'm going to come back to you for two questions uh, that flew by. Uh, somebody asked whether you might be able to say anything more about the predictive model that's being piloted. And then uh, also to w whether you've got either any hunches or any early things you can say about social determinants of health that might go into uh, some of this forward-looking uh, work. Thanks. Sure. Um, so um, I guess in terms of the predictive model, um, when I was referencing all available, you know, data that we have, um, just to give a little bit more, you know, certainly age, um, what the, the – um, the impact of their product or the what line of business, um, so whether they're a commercial member or Medicare, Medi-Cal, um, dually eligible, that sort of thing, risk score, um, what util historic utilization by care study, and all of that information got got pooled together, um, and and are under you know incorporated with you know which subsegment is most likely to be persistent. You know key learnings out of those those components were all factored in. Um, 
And then um, in terms of some of our learnings, um, we have primarily aimed at um, a subset of the population um, that we um, believe or predicting to be at highest risk, um, really in the care group two and three. So we've, um, we're, we're aiming some other um, programs at our um, the, the most frail population, but we're, we've reached out to the those, those sort of elastic and then those with kind of complex chronic conditions. And um, it, it's been very interesting. We found actually that, that those that are in the, that are less sick are actually have been more receptive to our outreach. Um, and we think it's because um, our we think we don't know for sure, but we think it's because um, they have less um, because they have fewer chronic illnesses. They maybe just have one, and perhaps the chronic illness is generally under control. But they have these other social needs, um, and they do need help in getting those things addressed. So um, that's been an interesting learning. Whereas we've had more of our segment three folks say, "You know what? I already get enough touches. Thank you very much." <laughs> um, you know, from the system between our our various programs that we have in the organization, that, that there's a fair amount of outreach, um, and plus they're just their their office, their visits with their physicians and their providers that they feel like they're getting um, most of what they need. Um, uh, so it's we've had some different uptake um, across the population. Thank you. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. First of all, I want to acknowledge in the chat there were two big, hefty issues or interesting, important issues. One about uh, sort of end of life and palliative care uh, as another variable in this. Uh, somebody also asked excuse me, about complex patients uh, in pediatrics, uh, which I think is another really interesting area. So I'm going to promise you that we pour over all of this and are, we'll kind of think about that as fodder for how we shape uh, the next program. Uh, I just want to make sure we can do this justice, uh, but I do acknowledge these uh, uh, questions and things people are putting in here. I want John to make just a quick mention of something, and then we're going to go around the horn. Eleni's going to answer one other question that uh, flew in, and then we'll get some closing remarks from everyone. John? Yeah, thanks, Madge. Well, if you enjoyed the conversation today and the topics, uh, you might want to enjoy, or you might enjoy uh, heading out to the uh, 16th annual International Summit on Improving Patient Care and the Office Practice in the Community. It's one of our signature events at IHI. It's being held this year in Dallas, Texas, March 15th to 17th, um, and Monday is the deadline for the early bo early bird registration. <laughs> So check it out, ihi.org slash summit. We're trying to meet our deadline in this hour here, getting everything out as fast as we can. So thanks, John. Uh, Eleni, let's use this as sort of your kind of final remarks. Uh, there was a question, and then we'll go around the horn to everyone. This was a question about um, staffing ratios. Uh, right. Right. Okay. So, yeah. case worker, uh, social worker, right. staff ratio question. Right. Uh -huh. So, our, or you, case uh, management, our care management. Right. Yeah. So, our care management model really is a uh, we pair a nurse complex care manager with a social work complex care manager, and we have a team, and that constitutes our team. Um, we uh, are particularly interested in having social workers in the mix because we have a pretty high prevalence of patients with mental health problems, and you know, social workers are the uh, the number one provider of mental health uh, services in the country. So, you know, they're really very well equipped to do it. And in many ways, they have been doing this. I mean, they're very foundational um, part of their education and their training is to provide these the, this kind of care management, comprehensive care management for patients. Uh, one bias there, of course, I'm a social worker, so I'm, I, you know, I want to put that out there. But um, so our model is uh, one nurse, one social worker, and in the coming year, will be adding uh, to each one of those teams a, a community health worker as well, and they'll be working collaboratively. Um. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I just want to say a big shout-out to Eleni. Um, it's fabulous in terms of our location here at IHI to have uh, Cambridge Health Alliance down the street. I think a huge contributor to so much innovation and important work going on uh, out of the world of the safety net system, and I think that's just hugely important to this thank topic you. and many others. All right, let's go around the horn. Uh, some final thoughts from you, Catherine, and then Matt and Kathy. Go ahead, Catherine. Sure. So reflecting on a question, um, we certainly are getting more and more precise 
about what specific interventions work uh, with these populations. Um, and that's what I'm referencing the work in the Better Health Lower Cost Collaborative. And the next thing on the horizon there that we're trying to sort out is this real question of what's the best way to predict future costs. So far we understand it as using a couple of different approaches, but we're hoping that we're going to figure out even more precisely down down the road. All right, thank you. We're we're basically sort of putting together our next program or programs on WHI and more things that we'll be tapping into. Thanks very much, uh, Catherine, for joining us today. Matt and then Kathy? Just a quick one. Um, I, I think one of the points that Kathy made at the beginning is a really important one that I want to underscore, and that's that we're looking for people with unexpectedly high utilization uh, for for outreach and complex care management. That's important because you know if our if our predictive models worked perfectly well, we would uh, all of the utilization would be perfectly predicted and 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 a lot of that, as Kathy mentioned, is justified because these people are really sick. Um, it, when we get into those situations where people have really high utilization that's not predicted by their by their clinical status, it means that the model's not working, um, that there's something else going on. And I think that one of what we found, as others have had, is that a lot of that has to do with the social determinants of health. We know that healthcare uh, has has limited impact on health outcomes, and that's where we need to go as an organization is to better understand those social determinants that have a powerful influence on health outcomes and address those. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Matt. So helpful in uh, being able to tap into your work and your help in preparing today, Kathy. Yeah, um, thank you, and um, I would just echo um, what Matt said. Um, that is really um, such a critical point that he's made. Um, and then just add, because um, there was a comment about advanced care planning, um, and um, we're doing tremendous work in that space, um, and, and that is really an integrated, uh, integral part of, of um, how we help our members manage and, um, and service that we can offer to our members. Um, and um, so we didn't talk a lot about that today, but it's it's a, a great and an important topic. All right. Thank you so much. All right. You've been a fabulous panel, a fabulous audience today, over 800 of you and then some. So I want to thank you very much. Uh, you took in a lot of information. You contributed a lot of information. And we'll come back to this topic in the not-too-distant future. Next up on WIHI on February 12th, this year, the ups and downs of healthcare costs and reform, and featuring our own Don Berwick along with David Cutler. So, uh, information about that is now live on W, excuse me, on IHI.org, and I hope you'll join that as well. You saw this uh, nice little slide of a group of people. They don't all appear on the slide, but I want to remind you that the people who help make WIHI possible include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Ruth James, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane. Rossner, Val Weber, and Mario Bello now. And I want to give a special thanks to Marie Shaw and Corey Seven for their help with today's program. Remember, you can find things on Twitter about this show, email info at IHI.org. Look to the website tomorrow for all the materials. If you need them right now, email info at IHI.org. You can download this chat transcript and all the slides as you get off the show. Thanks for filling out the survey. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning, and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Terrific program. Thank you.